This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of difficult or hidden subjects. Tonight's show is the second in a series on mental illness, and I'm going to be talking to Tom Wooten about bipolar disorder and the, and, uh, the particular way that he approaches it. Tom Wooten uh, is the founder of Bipolar in Order, the program that creates results that many in the mainstream of mental health don't believe are possible. He's the author of three books. He, has, he is bipolar himself, and he has founded Bipolar Advantage. The mission of this company is to help people with mental conditions shift their thinking and behavior so that they can lead extraordinary lives. Welcome to Safe Space, Tom. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. So let's start on a more personal note just by asking you to tell me a little bit about how you first discovered that you had bipolar and what, what your experience of it was and you know how that led you to... Well, it turns out my first full-blown manic episode was when I was nine years old. I was, um, my father turned me on to what's called accelerated learning, and I went from the fourth grade to the ninth grade in three months. No one noticed that I didn't sleep the whole time. I actually didn't get diagnosed until I was 42 years old. And it was interesting in that it explained a whole lot of my behaviors that had happened throughout my life. And they were all pretty bipolar, pretty manic and depressive episodes, unfortunately never diagnosed with it. So somehow you were functional enough that it didn't land you in the hospital. Well, I was functional enough to get fired and get in trouble a lot, but um, run-ins with the cops and everything else, but never figured out what it was. I just thought I was a horrible person. And so what so. happened? What led you to finally finding out, oh, no, this is actually something else. I'm not horrible. Well, it was actually around um, after 9-11, so that's about how long ago. I'm 55 now, and I lost a ton of money when the stock market crashed. I had several million dollars and I lost most of it. And it put me into a very severe depression. And I kept going to the clinic with minor ailments, backaches and that kind of stuff. Finally, a doctor said, maybe what you have is depression. And I said, well, of course I'm depressed. I've lost all my money. And, and he said something interesting. He said, do you know the difference between stress and depression? And I said, no. And he said, stress is the things that affect you. Depression is your inability to make choices around it. Mm. And somehow I resonated with that. And, and somehow that idea has really stuck with me ever since. It's a great definition. It's not one that I've heard of exactly before. But so the idea was that it was your reaction to stress in a way that that characterized the depression. Yeah, and my understanding of that over the years has really grown um, incredibly around that in that I am just coming out of the deepest depression I've ever had. And for every reason, it was incredibly deep depression. But now it's become kind of a beautiful experience to have it because I can separate what it feels like, the physical pain, the mental pain, the emotional pain, and the spiritual pain from how I choose to respond to that. And as soon as you separate what it feels like from how you react to it, you may even say, I'm no longer depressed because I'm not stuck in bed anymore. I'm now able to function absolutely normally, whether I'm completely depressed or at the other end in mania. Okay, so that's such an intriguing idea. I want to spend some time really talking about this. So you've come out recently, it sounds like, of a very deep depression. 
And when you when you say that, like, what were the what was the experience of the feelings of it? Well, there's a physical component to depression, and physically you feel aches and pains, a lot of back aches, a lot of aches and pains throughout the body, but also some nausea, and the most predominant one is is a feeling of just no energy. And this one was interesting in that I was so far into the no energy range that being very familiar with being depressed, I thought this is something special. This is more than just depression. And I went to the doctors and they did all the blood tests and said there's nothing wrong. And since I have a history of having a heart attack even, I said, well, maybe we should look into my heart my doctor turns to me and says, when are you going to admit that what you are is depressed and that's your problem? Hmm. And I said, yes, I'll, I do admit that I have depression, but I think it's, it's worth it for us to look into your heart condition. <laughs> and once she heard that, she agreed. But it made me wonder how many people aren't looking into their physical ailments because they're just saying, oh, I'm depressed. Or, so vice, or vice versa, part. right? Either way. Either one feels like an important thing not to miss. Yeah, so, I think there is, we need to recognize the physical piece. Yes. But we can't confuse that with real physical ailments. And once I, we assured that I didn't have a heart problem, they did the treadmill test and everything, that's fine. Well, then there's another part that's a mental piece. And I hallucinate. So when I start into the hallucinations of depression, I see myself driving into un coming traffic and hanging myself and shooting myself and and that's only part of the mental another mental part is the self-talk nobody loves you you're worthless um, why don't you just kill yourself and and sometimes that becomes like a tape loop kill yourself kill yourself kill yourself and if you weren't used to that so you had no training and understanding of what was going into the mind that might make yourself attempt suicide, which I did several years ago, many years ago. So that's the mental part. Emotionally, we don't even have a language for it. Sadness, despair, those kinds of words don't even get the depth of, of emotional feeling we have. And then the spiritual piece of it is not join my church piece, but it's more like, what's the meaning I see in my existence? And the spiritual crisis is, while we're depressed, we start thinking life has no meaning. Yeah. And the combination of all of those things is what it feels like to be depressed. Now, when you look up the definition of depression, it blends together those feelings with our common reactions to them, which I call disordered reactions. And what would be some common reactions to that experience of depression? Well, a depressive disorder, and most people would just label that depression. A depressive disorder means I'm having those feelings, and I lay in bed and cry all day, and I can't get out of bed, and I can't function. Or I'm taking actions that are harmful to myself, cutting myself, hurting myself. Um, I can't work, I can't do my job, I can't function. Isolating. I might even try to kill myself. Yeah. Those are disordered reactions to those feelings called depression. I distinguish one called an inordered reaction. And an inordered reaction is I've gained the understanding of it to the point that now that I have those feelings, 
those feelings are rich and exquisite and full of detail and full of insight. And it helps me to understand other people and feelings and, and the world around me at a much deeper level. I can't imagine not being able to feel the world in such a rich way. Almost like things just pierce your heart. Is that what you mean? Like you have more empathy for the suffering of others? Um, absolutely. But, but more than that. And what most people are saying is that we're not capable of handling this intensity of feelings. We're not capable of, of being there with these thoughts. So we should try to make them go away. Right. I mean, so much of, of modern psychiatry is about trying to make depression and mania go away. Correct. And it's almost as if we have a kind of phobia about strong feelings. Well, for me, I think it's, it's stigmatizing. It's telling people that you have an illness and you're sick and, and these feelings are bad. So we're taught to not want to become aware of or intimate with or even understand what it's like to feel these things because we've placed the label of bad on them. And instead of teaching people how to be with them and learn from them, we're teaching people how to hide from them and run away from them. When they inevitably come back, which the National Institute of Mental Health has proven, we have no training and no understanding of how to deal with them. So it's like, oh, no, they're here. What do I do? And I don't know how to respond. I'm at a tremendous risk of even loss of life because no one taught me that I was capable of actually understanding these feelings. So for you, yourself, you, um, how did you begin to learn that? I mean, how did you move from experiencing the deep depressive feelings and thoughts that you just described and the physical ache of it to almost like disidentifying it enough to be able to observe it and be in relationship to it? How, how did that happen for you? Well, you know, the depressive side has always kind of been there, but over the years, and, and research shows that for most people, over the years, the depressive side of manic depression becomes more predominant. And I have a background of following my father's footsteps in accelerated learning, but also I lived as a, as a monastic. So I was living in an environment for much of my life that looked within and was centered around let's look within. And my spiritual background made me understand that there were a lot of people who we call saints, who had very similar feelings, and it actually was part of, made them grow. So one of those saints, um, St. Teresa of Avila, she had an extreme physical pain. And at one point in her life, that pain is what actually made her become what you might call enlightened or, or turned her into a saint. And she said, the pain is still there. It bothers me so little now that I feel my soul was served by it. And I literally repeated that phrase over and over again for 10 months and wondering what it meant. And much of that 10 months while I was deeply depressed. And I got angry with her. And I got upset about it. But over time, I kind of came to oneness with that idea that bliss, if we want to call it that, isn't the state of just happy all the time. It's a state of it's still there even in St. Teresa's pain. It's still there even in my deepest depression. 
And when I can tie into that part of me, the pain becomes, not to belittle it, but it becomes like I'm watching it in a movie. And we all go to movies that are painful and walk out crying saying it was beautiful. And that's how depression has become for me. Hmm. Now, that would be great if it was just me. But we've been able to replicate this in a lot of other people. Some of them who have for 40 years been following the normal route. Let's run away from it. So, Tom, how do you do that? So, you know, because as you know, I'm a psychiatrist. I see people who struggle with depression every day. And... And often people don't want to take medication. They want to figure out a way through it, but they're still basically wanting those feelings to go away. They're wanting to get rid of it. They're not, as I'm, you know, it's it's very rare to hear what you're saying, that there's some way that you're wanting to almost be present with it, be bigger than it, and be able to observe it with a kind of equanimity. Well, there are certain stages that we all go through. And when we look at depression or mania, we go through a crisis typically, and that's when everything is so intense and so outside of our comfort zone that we've totally lost our ability to deal with it. And that crisis puts some of us in the hospital, gets some of us to attempt suicide, gets some of us to seek help. But it's, a, it's our crisis stage that isn't our entire life, but it's the time when it's so intense we can't deal with it. And that's not the time to talk about these things. All right. Crisis stage means get help. Call a hotline, get help. Well, most people spend their time in what we call manage stage. They've learned to manage their condition by making sure they sleep well and taking medicine and nutrition and exercise and countless ways to keep it from getting so far out of control. And in managed stage, the primary goal is to try to minimize the experience with the end goal of getting to what they call recovery. And recovery means I'm never high anymore and I'm never low anymore. I've learned how to stop those swings. And that's the goal of treatment. Mainstream, almost everyone calls recovery the goal of treatment. Now, we have a different word for recovery at Bipolar Advantage. We call it bored because life isn't meant to have lack of highs and lows. And this National Institute of Mental Health did studies and proved that with the best evidence-based practices there are, bipolar disorder remains a highly recurrent and mostly depressive illness. So that combination, getting in the managed phase, Going back and forth into crisis and into recovery is a vicious circle that we call bipolar disorder or depression disorder. It is a horrible thing. And that end point that we call recovery is a very, very necessary step to get to. We have to get so that we're inside a range of experience that we're comfortable and we can function well in. After that, then we start into the in-order side. We start taking steps that say, I'm going to go outside of my comfort zone, but use my skills and my tools to instantly step back in. And over time, we develop the ability to expand our range back out again. 
And that's what we teach, that end of the program. So let's talk a little bit more about that. So what you're saying in many ways is recovery is necessary but not good enough. There's more. Yeah, I don't believe recovery should be the end point of treatment. Yeah, so when you talk about the tools and the skills that you teach, that you use to help people stretch into something beyond that, and you call that th- the three steps that I read about were freedom, stability, and ultimately self-mastery. I wonder if you could maybe tell us, tell me a little bit about what those next three stages are and some of the concrete tools that you use to help people get there. Well, we call freedom the stage when I've broken out of that vicious cycle of of recovery and then relapse, and I've started to expand my range. So my my principal methods are no longer restricting my range of, of abilities. It's turned into expanding it. And the range of recovery is until I've made it just as high and just as low as the times when I was managing it, but managing it was still a struggle for me. It was still not comfortable to be here. I had just learned to keep it from getting totally out of control. The next stage we get to we call stability. And stability means I have become truly stable. There's nothing that's going to take away my ability to remain stable. And stability is generally called recovery. But recovery is proven not to be very stable because the day you wake up from a bad night's sleep you're back in crisis again. So that's not a stable state. What I understand you to mean by stable there is not the absence of highs or lows, but the ability to, to be with them and not react to them in a way that means you don't, nothing dangerous happens. Absolutely. So if I have a Ferrari and I'm driving around a twisty mountain road, it's stable because it's a stable car. But if I try to keep up with it with a minivan with a bunch of stuff on the roof, it's going to flip over because it's not a stable car. What they're saying is park both of those cars in the garage and they'll be stable. That's recovery. And what I'm saying is we can become stable even when I'm just as high as the time I ended up in trouble, a crisis, or I'm just as deeply depressed as the time I tried to commit suicide. I'm having that same state now, but it's not controlling my behaviors. I'm driving it stable. I understand it so well, and I've learned to function so well, that I'm no longer afraid that what happens if I don't get sleep tonight, or what happens if I wake up tomorrow and I'm depressed. It's just another day. It's a different day, and it's an intense day, but it doesn't knock me off my stability. I can still get up, and I can still function. So already that sounds pretty great to me. What's the last stage, self-mastery? Well, self-mastery is I've learned how to master my decision process. I can choose how to respond to my conditions. I don't always choose right, but I'm at least consciously making the choice. And that stage is beyond stability, which means I'm experiencing higher highs than the ones that used to get me in trouble. And I'm experiencing deeper lows than the ones that had me try to kill myself. My range has expanded as far as it's possible What I now have is what we call bipolar in order. I'm absolutely, definitely bipolar. I have extreme highs with all the energy and everything else that comes with it, but not the bad behaviors. And I have extreme lows with all of the feelings and emotions and thoughts and and spiritual issues without it making me 
act in bad ways. So let's we, talk about the other end of that spectrum, Tom, because, you know, from my training, you know, I think about my early years working in, in psychiatric units and people would come in manic who were so psychotic they almost couldn't speak anymore. They were, you know, and it was very, very difficult to communicate and really until, you know, medication had helped them kind of come back down, it it, it was um, very hard to connect to that mm-hmm. person. And it was it was absolutely life-threatening. And, or, the, you know, they'd just been extracted from some life-threatening situation on the roof or something that gets doctors very nervous. <laughs> Everyone in that person's yeah. life, extremely nervous. And... I remember we used to talk about, you know, that for some people, when they would get manic, they would have what would be described as an early loss of insight. Mm-hmm. But their ability to even recognize that they were manic was sort of gone quickly and that the person could escalate into a very dangerous place quite quickly. And in your experience, is it possible for someone like that to be, to learn through training and practice to become aware of it and to be present to it in a way where it doesn't take them over? Well, the belief is it's not possible whatsoever. The, def- the very definition of it is it's not possible. But, and, I, and I run into people who go, I've been practicing for 30 years and I've never met anyone who ever said a good thing about depression. Or I've never met anybody with the insight to be able to be a- even aware of their manias and their hallucinations and that kind of stuff. And, and that's actually incredibly sad because... Yes. We are capable of it, and not only have I, but many others have proven that we are. And instead of training people to become aware and getting them disability and then giving them the the training, we're defining it as we've made your illness go away. Now go out there and kind of accept this diminishment of your capabilities instead of actually training them how to get there. So let's talk about that training. So say a person is out of that crisis phase. You know, they were very manic. They were medicated. They were in the hospital. They're now, they've worked through self-care and so on. So they're in, they work through, man, you know, ma- the management phase into recovery. How would you, what would be the training? Give me some concrete examples of what helps people. Well, there's a few different stages of it. And the first stage is getting a very thorough assessment. And then the second stage is using the tools that are available, which includes all of the very great tools out there. Cognitive therapies and and everything else are great tools. But there are more advanced tools also that aren't appropriate for somebody who is in crisis or managed stage. So there's some more advanced tools that we can use that help people to understand these things that we've developed. So what's an example of something like that? And then the next stage is using the tools. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of people, they want to go out and buy a a plumbing truck and all the tools, but they don't want to get the training. They just want to stick a shingle up and say, I'm a plumber. And, And that seems absurd to a plumber, but it's just plain the way it is with mental health. We're, we're saying, here's all these tools. And now that you've got the tools, you're, you're an expert. And the expert should be, I know how to make things work. So an expert plumber is a guy who knows how to plumb your house and make the water run properly. An expert at bipolar is somebody who knows how to make bipolar in order, not just 
hold on to bipolar disorder or temporary recovery. Okay, well, so if I if I promise not to pretend to be an expert at your tools, <laughs> I would love still though to just ask you, just so, so people can get a feel for what you're talking about, to keep, to take it out of the abstract. What what do you mean? What would be an example? Well, an example of the tool called assessments is instead of just trying to say, do you, do you hallucinate, do you feel depressed? Instead, we start asking questions more like, how do you? So if we looked at somebody's depression, for example, we would say, on a scale of 1 to 100, 100 being the most depressed it's possible to be, and then to try to help you understand that scale, 80 is the level where you tried to kill yourself when you had your crisis. Your worst crisis is, is an 80 because you can have more. And the minimum zero or just one is so barely depressed that you're probably not even aware of it. Where is the highest you've ever been and where that's your high level and where's the lowest you've ever been? How much was it? Was it 10? Was it 20? You'd be amazed at how many people weren't even aware of their depression until it was 50, even though people around them were telling them they seemed depressed. So that's how aware of it are you. And the next step is, now that you, we've understood where you're aware you are, and we do this on a graph, now how much do you understand it? Do you understand the mechanism? Do you understand what's going on? Have you, have you really learned the, the brain functions and what's happening to you? How well do you understand it on a scale of 1 to 100? At the high end? And at your low end. Do you mean understand it like intellectually, or do you mean understand it like what's what am I vulnerable to? Well, what are the early warning signs? Is typically that typically that's about a ten fifteen minute conversation with a person back and forth, you know, because they're asking those kind of questions, and then that fifteen minutes it, it starts to get deeper. They start to really dig into well, I don't really understand it that well, especially at the high end. So the next step is, how well do you function? When you're deeply depressed on a scale of 1 to 100, how well do you function? And somebody who doesn't have this kind of training would usually go, I'm debilitated, I can't function at all. But at the low end, the lower depression, I can function 50, 60% of normal. So we're starting to graph out where they are. The next step is, how comfortable are you? when you're deeply depressed and when you're just a little depressed. And then each of these is a 10, 15-minute conversation. Okay. The next step is, how much do you value it? And then people go, what do you mean value 